It's Tuesday, July 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Another mass shooting has happened in the country, this time in Northern California at the Gilroy Garlic Festival. 19-year-old Santino William Legan opened fire at the festival, killing three and injuring at least 12 others. Police were on the scene quickly, exchanging fire with a gunman and killed him. It was all over in about a minute. Barry Holtzclaw, managing editor at the Gilroy Dispatch, joins us for what we know. Next, while we want to know everything we can about why these tragedies happen, it is important not to lose sight of the victims. While many were injured, the three deaths are heartbreaking because of how young the victims were. They are 6-year-old Stephen Romero, 13-year-old Kayla Salazar, and 25-year-old Trevor Irby. My producer, Brooke Peterson, joins us for more. Finally, another shakeup in the Trump administration as the Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coats, is resigning. Texas Representative John Ratcliffe has been tapped to take over the post. Ratcliffe is a fierce defender of the president and attracted attention for his stern questioning of Robert Mueller. Morgan Chalfant, national security reporter at The Hill, joins us for who John Ratcliffe is. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Mass gun violence is an epidemic in the United States, and yet one never imagined such a thing can happen here in our beautiful community. Joining us now is Barry Holtzclaw, managing editor of the Gilroy Dispatch, the local newspaper there where this tragedy occurred. Thank you for joining us, Barry. My pleasure. So over the weekend, there was another shooting, this time at the Gilroy Garlic Festival. I mean, one of the top festivals in California, you always hear about it. Uh, Gilroy is kind of synonymous with this festival. And it's just really the latest addition to these mass shootings. And in this case, it was a 19-year-old man who opened fire. Three people were killed. Up to 12 to 15 people were injured in other ways. Tell us a little bit about what we know about this. Well, at first they thought there were two people involved, but now the authorities have pretty much concluded that there was just one uh, one shooter who was a local boy. Well, he's a, a recent high school graduate. His, his, his grandfather was a former county supervisor. His father's a well-known uh, runner. His brother was a boxing athlete who uh, had a college boxing scholarship and he had three brothers and grew up here, went to, went to school here. Um, when the first call came out at 5.41 yesterday, the festival was going to be shutting down at 6, so the, the crowd had dispersed somewhat. There, was, there were a few people there that it might have been three or four hours earlier. You mentioned that the shooting came towards the end of the festival. The band that was playing called Tin Man, they were actually starting an encore performance when the shooting started. We have a, a little clip of this, and you can hear the gunshots in the background, and then the panic that happened right after. Barry, can you tell us how the gunman got in to the festival? Uh, reports that I was seeing was that there were metal detectors at some of the entrances there were no security cameras throughout the festival, but there was a large police presence. So how did he get in to the festival? Well, you know what? The, the security was, the gunman got in through a hole in the fence, according to the police. There's a creek that runs along one side of this park called Christmas Hill Park, where this, where the festival grounds uh, occurs. And 
Um, they found a, a portion of the fence along the creek where someone had cut through it, and that's where they theorized he came in because he was carrying a, 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 a semi-automatic rifle, which would have been difficult to get get through. But the metal detectors were not used at every entrance, and there were instances where I would say the majority of bags also were not checked as people walked in um, because a lot of people came in from the neighborhoods, so they parked in the neighborhoods and walked in. So that it wasn't like everybody who came into the festival walked through a metal detector or even had their bags checked. There was just too many people coming from about a half a dozen different entrances. But for the shooter to get in carrying a weapon like that, he clearly would have had to have come in surreptitiously, which is what he apparently did. Tell us a little bit about the gun. The gun was an SKS. It's an AK-47 type assault rifle that was purchased legally, although not in California. He bought it in Nevada. Correct. It's interesting because he's 19 years old. Californians younger than 21 cannot buy rifles under a new law that was passed after Parkland. But in Nevada, the laws are a, a lot looser. So he was able to obtain this. One of the first things that happens after tragedies like this, we delve into the social media of the gunman. What do we know about this particular gunman's social media. It seems like it's very little. There's an Instagram account that was created just four days before the shooting happened. Right. And, and many of those Instagram posts were deleted. So so it wasn't like sometimes it's been in the case with some of these others where there's been someone who has been posting long essays or reposting yeah. things uh, on social media. There was a reference to a book, uh, Marginally White Supremacist, but um, there wasn't a whole lot of indication that there was, a, at least from a social media standpoint, a, a strong advocacy position or a plot or anything like that. Some of the reports were, and you know, this is hard to substantiate, but someone yelled at him, you know, why are you doing this? And he supposedly shouted out, because I'm really angry. That's uh, what one witness said, yeah. yes. The, the book that you were referring to a little bit ago is called Might is Right by Ragnar Redbeer. And as you said, it has white supremacist themes in, in it and whatnot, but very little on the social media to really be able to glean any type of motive from there. Barry, tell us about the Gilroy Garlic Festival, because this is a place for families. Obviously, there was two young children that were killed in all of this. It's been go happening for so long. Just another one of these places where people are going to be wary the next time around. Well, there's a company called Christopher Ranch, which produces about three-quarters of the processed garlic in the entire country, and they, they do it in Gilroy. Most of the garlic is no longer grown in Gilroy. Most of it's grown in the Central Valley, but it's all processed here. There's quite a bit of processing involved with garlic and different garlic products. And so Christopher Ranch started this festival 41 years ago, and the community sort of took hold of it, and it's become sort of a signature event. You can smell garlic in the air. Usually the temperature is in the 90s. This, this year was in the high 80s, which they considered cool. And they have, they have celebrity chefs from, uh, from all the famous celebrity chef TV shows. They have cook-off competitions with young people and music at three or four venues, about uh, 200 vendors selling everything from barbecue to garlic ice cream. Uh, and families come from, from all over. And how has the community been reacting so far to this? I, I know the community tends to get together and really support each other when things like this happen. But how, how are they feeling right now after, uh, you know, as, as I said, another tragedy strikes a place where people are getting together expecting to have just some good old-fashioned fun? Well, people are pretty stunned. There, there, there have been outpourings of comments and expressions, but, but the town is, I think it's very subdued. And people are still in shock. Uh, 
at the uh, there was a press conference and the, the mayor was in shock. The police chief was almost in tears talking about the young people who were killed. It's really numbing when you think of the. I mean, there, there were there were there was. We have one video that someone sent us. It literally is a river of blood flowing through this one section of the of the garlic festival with so many people were wounded. And I don't think the committee's really the community's really figured out what this means yet. Right. Yeah, we'll we'll continue to monitor the story and see what other information we can get out of this. Barry Holtzclaw, managing editor of the Gilroy Dispatch. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. The Gilroy community will mourn, but we will get through it. Our prayers are with the families of those injured and killed in the senseless shooting. We stand with you and we will be providing whatever assistance we can in the days and weeks ahead. Joining me now is my producer, Brooke Peterson. Thank you for being here, Brooke. Of course. wanted to share a little bit more about this Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting it's always tough to cover these stories. You know, there's a lot of details that people want at first, but we have to try to never lose sight of the victims in all of this. All three victims have been identified now. Six-year-old Stephen Romero, 13-year-old Kayla Salazar, and 25-year-old Trevor Irby. Brooke, what do we know so far about these three victims? Yeah, so according to Mr. Holtzclaw, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, a business association, and a community foundation have gotten together to sponsor GoFundMe accounts for both Stephen Romero and Kayla Salazar. They both have a goal of $50,000. But remember, Stephen Romero's mom is still in the hospital. So I imagine a lot of this donation money might go toward her hospital expenses in addition to taking care of, of little Stephen. Yeah, and we still don't know too much about the victims themselves. Uh, Kayla, we still don't know much about her. We'll be hearing more about that in the coming days. Trevor Irby, he was 25 years old. He was a graduate of CUCA College in upstate New York. He was a biology major. Yeah, and he had posted something on Facebook, which seems really important and apropos now. And it says, life comes with no guarantees, no timeouts, no second chances. You just have to live life to the fullest. Tell someone what they mean to you and tell them off. Speak out. Dance in the pouring rain. Hold someone's hand. Comfort a friend. Fall asleep watching the sun come up. Stay up late. Be a flirt. And smile until your face hurts. And that's why these things are so tragic because we learn about these people after the fact and how full of life they were and how, how much they wanted to just be who they were. Uh, Trevor was there attending the three-day garlic festival with his girlfriend, Sarah Warner. Uh, she did manage to escape this, thankfully. But as I said, you know, these people, we cannot lose track of them. And then most tragically, only because he was the youngest, Stephen Romero. Uh, he was six years old. He got gunned down. Uh, I think they mentioned that he was by one of the bounce houses. As You know, this whole garlic festival was a big family event. Julia Sulek, she's a reporter with the Bay Area News Group, got a chance to speak to Albert Romero, who was Stephen's father. We have a little bit of audio to play for a minute. It was just really heartbreaking. He wasn't there at the festival. He was at home with his daughter. He's an electrician. He was studying for an upcoming exam. So Stephen was there with his mother and his grandmother, who also got shot, both of them. And he had to race 30 miles to get to the hospital once he heard what had happened. Here's a little bit of audio from that interview between Albert Romero and Julia Sulek. 
Tell me what she said again. She said that they shot my son and they took him from her, like the officer. And and she so she was shot in the stomach at the time. Shot in the stomach and hand. What did you think when she told you this? I couldn't believe what was happening. That what she was saying was a lie. Maybe I was dreaming. Someone, the St. Louis hospital called me and told me that she was there and my son. Okay, so you went there and what was the situation there? Did you, you saw your son, was he? They told me he was in critical condition that they were working on him. And then five minutes later, they told me that he was dead. It's just tragic to hear that. Alberto Romero's wife, Barbara, she was put in a medically induced coma after that. As you heard him say, she got shot in the stomach and in the hand. Alberto's mother-in-law, Barbara, she was also shot. She's being treated at the hospital. You know, just talking about his boy, Stephen, Alberto said that he was joyful, always wanted to play, always positive. I mean, and what do you expect? He's he's a six-year-old boy his whole life ahead of him and got taken away because this guy wanted to shoot up. And we still don't know why he attacked the garlic festival there. So we'll be hearing more about the victims in the coming days and we'll try to share more of it when we can. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you, Oscar. Some, not all of my democratic colleagues promised the American people evidence that never existed. Some, not all, Democrats shouted fire, feeding a false Trump-Russia collusion narrative that never existed. Joining us now is Morgan Chalfant, national security reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Morgan. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about some change-ups in the Trump administration uh, once again. Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, is resigning after two years with the administration, and the president has announced that he is nominating Representative John Ratcliffe from Texas. What do we know about this changeup? Dan Coates' ouster was rumored for a while. Him and the president have publicly clashed on a variety of issues, including Russian interference, intelligence on North Korea and Iran and other issues. So it wasn't surprising that Coates uh, is tendering his resignation. There have been various candidates in the mix that could replace him. And the president has, as you mentioned, chosen Rep. John Radcliffe, who has been relatively little known, except for the last couple of years when he's kind of risen to prominence, investigating allegations, Republican allegations of bias at the FBI and the investigation into Trump and his campaign's ties to Russia. And the president has reportedly, he, he caught the president's eye, particularly when he questioned former special counsel Robert Mueller last week. So this is somebody that I think has been on Trump's radar for a while and is definitely more aligned with him politically on their views on the Russia investigation. So it's it represents an effort by the president to kind of install people who he views as his political allies within his administration over folks like Coates who, who exhibit independent streaks from the president. Right. Yeah. Dan Coates had been kind of um, among the last seasoned foreign policy hands around the president. And a lot of the uh, criticisms, let's say, uh, of John Ratcliffe is that maybe he doesn't have that much experience there. He does serve on the um, intelligence committee in the House, but how much experience does he have in this in this area he has to 
handle and coordinate all of the intelligence agencies for the government. Right. It's certainly a point of criticism among Democrats and probably likely some questions among Republicans who are actually pretty quiet on his nomination thus far. Um, Other than folks in the House, really people on the Senate side are kind of keeping quiet and waiting till his confirmation gets underway to make a decision. Supporters of him tout his background as a former federal prosecutor who handled terrorism cases, the fact that he's on the Intelligence Committee. But of course, he only joined the Intelligence Committee this Congress, so he's really been only on it for six months or so. He has served also on the Homeland Security and Judiciary Committees, but this is certainly not somebody that's coming from an intelligence background per se. And I think that's going to be a point of criticism in addition to the fact that people are concerned about whether or not he's going to be able to speak truth to power and kind of have that independent voice that the the head of the intelligence community is expected to have. You mentioned how some of the reaction was kind of muted. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell released a statement saying the U.S. Intelligence Committee works best when it's led by professionals who protect its work from political or analytical bias. And that kind of points to this whole reason why John Ratcliffe has gotten this bump, though. It was a lot of it had to do with the Mueller testimony that happened the last time and his defense of the president and, and taking down the whole Mueller report. And he was very political in that. He almost, you know, kind of taking the line that, you know, it was along that Russian hoax type of thing. And I'm sure that's going to come up in his Senate confirmation hearing. And they're going to have to ask him, do you believe that Russia interfered in the 2016 election? And how he answers that is going to be critical. Right. And, you know, it's not only the Mueller testimony. I mean, he's frequently on Fox News kind of talking about these um, conservative allegations of bias at the FBI against Trump. I think that he said over the weekend that uh, he believed crimes were committed during the Obama administration. So there's a lot of material that I think Democrats particularly going to try to sift through and question him on as he's up for this role. Uh, And it's an open question. I mean, this is somebody that handles himself pretty well publicly. I mean, you know, his questioning of Mueller, while it's drawn a lot of criticism, was, you know, he's obviously very confident in the way that he's able to to question and, and answer questions. So I think that, you know, he you might see him well prepared, but it's also you're wondering who he's going to be playing towards, because if he's trying to play for the president, then he might answer those questions in a way that he views the president as liking his answer. And so that's different than, you know, asserting your independence and, and pleasing both sides of the aisle and convincing them that you're not you're going to be an arbiter of unbiased intelligence. I mean, it's a tough position to be in after all of the past statements that he's that he's made. How quickly right. does this happen? It's a super important position, the director of national intelligence. How quickly does this move through the Senate? Well, as, as we've seen, the Senate doesn't necessarily move at a rapid fire pace, but I think it will move relatively quickly, especially now that um, you've seen other nominations move through. I think that they're going on a recess after this week. So it's not going to happen this week. And remember that Coates is not leaving until August 15th. So I expect this will be probably first order of business by the time lawmakers return for the fall. And in the meantime, uh, President Trump has said he's going to name uh, an interim uh, director. Morgan Shelfont, national security reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Brooke Peterson and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.